Hello and welcome to the Swiss Connection. I'm Susan Masika. Think of interpreters and you might think of faces wearing headphones in glass booths at conferences. Or perhaps people whispering into the ears of presidents at international summits. But have you ever thought about the skills these unsung heroes have to master and the pressures they have to face? In this podcast, Swiss Info journalist Thomas Stevens speaks to one of the Swiss Parliament's nine official interpreters about the challenges of ensuring that everyone can understand what's going on in a country with three official languages. Translating the news at home, at least for a couple of minutes, and then my girlfriend comes in and talks to me, and I realize, okay, I probably shouldn't be doing that. Are the occupational hazards of being a professional interpreter? If you or I ever need to interpret between two people, we'll probably end up doing some consecutive interpreting. Frau Schmidt, for example, will say a sentence in German and then wait while you tell Mr. Smith what she has just said, and so on. This works fine, but it's slow. Simultaneous interpreting, on the other hand, considerably increases the efficiency, but also the stress and mental challenge. Listening and speaking at the same time is not a natural human act. Hans Martin Jurimann has mastered this skill, however, and has been interpreting in the Swiss Parliament for 14 years. I visited him in his booth, with its prime view over the House of Representatives debating chamber, during the autumn parliamentary session. I started off by asking him, outside his booth, how he felt the first time he put the headphones on in Bern. I was absolutely nervous the first time I did it. I was overwhelmed with all the, not so much basically the, the speeches that were delivered, but more the, the context and all the specific uh, you know, jargon that they use, you know, At first, that frightened me a bit, and it took me quite a while to get through that jungle of terms. And then once you've done that, you can actually focus on what's being said, what's being delivered by whom, and you start understanding. Once you understand the way it works, it's a lot easier. You get that out of the way, and you, you can really focus on what's being said by members of parliament. So how does it work? Switzerland has three official languages, German, French, and Italian. There were therefore three interpreting booths, one interpreting into German, one into French, and one into Italian. Judemann is in the German booth. Because simultaneous interpreting is one of the most exhausting things the brain can do, each booth is home to three interpreters who take it in turns to work shifts of between 30 and 45 minutes. Whereas I would probably go and lie down in a dark room between shifts, Judemann says a quick coffee and a bit of sunshine is usually enough, and often interpreters prefer to stay in the booth, After all, an interpreter spends almost as much time preparing as actually translating. Yes, that's, that's probably one of the things that makes it so uh, challenging. It, when we leave in the evenings, we're all pretty much tired. And Any conference that you work for, it's usually monothematical. You get one topic, it's about you know, the dentist's or congress or something like that. And It might take some time to prepare, but it's, what you get here is a mixed bag. You get, go from A to B to C, and obviously you do have your agenda, but then... Usually, you won't be able to prepare every single item on that agenda. It would just uh, take, it, it take you days to do that, read all the background documents. So actually learning how to prepare for sessions, parliamentary sessions, is, is essential. Judemann, like his eight colleagues, is a freelancer who has a contract for the eight or so weeks that Parliament sits a year. He grew up in trilingual Canton Graubünden, and in addition to German, French, Italian and English, he speaks Spanish and can understand Romance, Switzerland's fourth national language. He clearly has a gift for languages, but how difficult is listening and talking really? 
Have you never sat in a train and there was someone having a conversation next to you and you were having a conversation, you picked up some of what was being said? That's how it starts some, somehow. Like you, you sort of realize that you can, you're quite good at that, you can, you can eavesdrop, you can talk, have a conversation at the same time, follow what's going on there. And then it's also sort of, I think it's mechanical to, to some point, you can train it a bit. And that's how you start in, in, at uh, interpreting school. First you start uh, with an exercise that's called shadowing. So you listen to a text and you repeat what is being said in the same language with a bit of a delay. And then, you know, it, you take it from there. You go home and practice. So you're watching the news and you try to simultaneously interpret the news at the same time. Yes, I did a lot of that. News, uh, before the internet, it was a real challenge. You could really get to any sources of audio. You know, there were no audio archives and stuff. But then YouTube came and you, that's uh, really made things a lot easier, preparation a lot easier. Before that, you know, we had to work with tapes from the 80s, from some kind of meeting at the UN. And it, there was no sort of, uh, it wasn't related to the present really. So it made it really difficult. But nowadays, preparation's a lot easier. I often hear that the hardest part of interpreting is jokes, you know, because a lot of puns and wordplay are basically untranslatable. Whenever someone stands up and says, right, I'm going to tell you a joke now, does your, does your heart sink? Have you got an emergency supply of gags up your sleeve? That you, how does it... it would be useful to have an emergency supply. No, absolutely, that's, that's probably the toughest. Uh, or translating menus, you know, someone... A, a conference in the Bernese Oberland and, and someone... Uh, sort of standing up by the way the menu tonight is and then there's all these local specialties and you have no idea how to translate those but uh, yeah jokes are absolutely um, usually impossible to translate you have to paraphrase but you know obviously it lo they lose their you know there's no there's no fun anymore do you have any examples of amusing mistakes either you have made or, or anonymous colleagues have made i do but i'm not sure i want to share them with you at the end of the day, after a parliamentary session, I mean, how do you feel? Do you ever, you go to a restaurant and you just find yourself interpreting the waiter or something like that? That can happen, yes, that, that can absolutely happen. Here in Bern, it very much depends on whether it was a very French debate or an Italian debate or a German debate. After, you know, some afternoons, we just basically, uh, we're present, but you don't have to work much. And then you really have to struggle not to sort of uh, lose track of what's being said. But on a day that's actually very French or Italian, um, sometimes yeah, you find yourself leaving, leaving the, the, the Bundeshaus and sort of also going through things you said. And, oh, wasn't there a better way to say that? And, and, and yes, absolutely, as you said, also listening to other people and sort of translating or translating the news at home at least for a couple of minutes. And then my girlfriend comes in, uh, sort of uh, talks to me and I realize, OK, I, shouldn't, I probably shouldn't be doing that. Do you find that there are some politicians who are easier to interpret than others? I mean, everyone has some different rhetorical styles. I imagine that the better you know a person's attitude and sense of humour and so on, it, it, the, the easier it is to interpret them. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, there are huge differences between various uh, politicians. That's why it's hugely helpful, as you, as you saw before, to have actually visual contact. So being sort of in a, in a booth without a screen or anything, you would still be able to interpret what's being, what's being said. But here you get lots of gestures, you get, you know, there's hecklers down there and stuff. You, you get, and you, you can see who's getting ready to ask a question and you know the dynamics of that. And there are certain speakers, let, let me put it this way, the most difficult is always when someone comes up with a written speech and uh, did not send it to us. So uh, we try to prompt them and, and tell them, please send us your documents. It, it's not so much about speed, but when speed comes together with the written text, it's, it's very challenging.
You said the hecklers. Do you have to translate the heckles as well? That must be a challenge. Well, it's usually the, we can't hear because the microphone's just on the, on the rostrum, so we don't... But yes, we, when we hear what's going on, we, we, we translate that as well. Yeah. What does one need to be a good interpreter? You obviously need excellent language skills, but there's... I mean, no, I, I get the impression that knowing the language is, isn't enough. You need good cultural awareness, you know cultural references, even personal dynamics. You know, what's the speaker's character? You're working not just with words, but with ideas, with emotions. Are there any characteristics or qualities or skills that the best interpreters have in common? I would say that probably a general feat would be that you have to be curious. You have to be, you know, there's topics being dealt in uh, there that probably wouldn't interest the majority of the population. Personally, I like, I like foreign politics. I like uh, uh, what's going on between Switzerland and the EU and stuff like that. Natural, like, uh, environment's always a challenge because, you know, it's often it's about the protection of a specific species and you have to learn lists of insects and stuff like that. That's also, that's interesting, like, but because you know that your performance depends on your preparation, you have to, you sort of have to force yourself to be interested in all those topics. Do you ever interpret between, between two people when a, a, cabinet, a politician or a cabinet minister goes somewhere and, you know, there's, there's somebody in the background whispering in, in, in ears? Do you, do you ever do spontaneous interpreting between two people? Yes, I've done that with members of government, also with uh, speakers of the House of Nationalratspräsidenten. When they met with, for example, I remember this meeting between the, the Nationalratspräsident and uh, the head of the Palestinian Authority. How does that compare with what, what you're doing here? Well, number one, it's usually English and between English and German. Uh, two, you're immensely more uh, nervous. Number three, uh, the content, like, it's basically not, it's not as challenging as what we do here. But here it's all about the technicalities of laws, about, you know, uh, getting your glossary right, having your vocabulary and everything. And there it's just about mostly courtesy visits, so it's, what's being said is not so important, but uh, it's, it's more about the presentation, whereas here in the booth... Content is, is essential. There are 200 politicians in the House of Representatives. The 46-seat Senate doesn't have interpreting. How many politicians actually use the headphones? Is, is there an element of uh, pride? In, if, if you feel seen to be using headphones, is that, sort of, um, is that a sign of weakness? I could only speculate on that. But um, as you probably noticed, uh, the sheer amount of people sitting down there during a normal debate is not uh, so impressive. So there might be, there's maybe a third of the of the councillors sitting there right now, and every now and then, you know, someone grabs the he- headphones. I can see there's people using them uh, like systematically, but um, there might be an element of pride in there. Yes, I guess, and it's it's also the other element is that in the plenary, there's usually not, you know, there's no breaking news. It's not. Votes have been decided and the debates uh, happened in, in the commissions and everything. So uh, that's, that also plays a role. So. Have you noticed any change in politicians' linguistic skills over the years? That's a tricky one. Well, I tend to believe that younger politicians are probably more e-speaking English than, rather than, uh, than French. There's some systematic users of our services, but I can't really see all of them, so it would be difficult to make an assumption in that way. But assuming that uh, sort of in society in general there has been a shift, uh, a generational shift uh, concerning language skills as well, it'd be 
fair to assume that that also reflects in Parliament. In Switzerland, you do occasionally hear two Swiss from different linguistic regions speaking English. I've noticed at Swiss Info, I, I see that as well, between Swiss colleagues speaking English, usually younger ones. Um, is English ever spoken in the corridors of power in, in Bern? I've never, I've, no, I've never heard that, actually, no. So there's no, I mean, it's probably politically taboo, but there's no, never talk of making English a, a sort of lingua franca in Parliament. No, wait another 20 years. Computer technology is advancing rapidly. Computers can already translate texts impressively, and voice technology is also, you know, a lot better than it was even just two years ago. Are you worried for the future? Can you see? I mean, a computer could, in theory, do do the job, couldn't it? Well, to some extent, yes. Um, you know, most interpreters follow what's going on, and then you think, well, it'll still be another 20 years before that happens. And it might. It might be that way. But I, honestly, I'm not sure whether what would be first, English as lingua franca, which would mean that we're superfluous anyway, or computer technology sort of uh, advancing to the point that uh, it could replace us. It is extremely sophisticated, and, and I guess you know, feeding, those, feeding those computers will take, will take years. Essentially, it's a question of time. I'm, I agree with you. That was Hans Martin Jorimann, an interpreter in the Swiss Parliament, speaking to Thomas Stevens. Visit us at swissinfo.ch for more stories about multilingualism in multicultural Switzerland. The Swiss Connection is a podcast where we talk to newsmakers based in Switzerland as well as Swiss people living abroad. We produce a new episode every few weeks. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or another platform to be sure you don't miss the next one. Thanks for listening, and thank you to studio technician Donnie Wheeler. Signing off for all of us here, I'm Susan Masika. Hello, I'm Imogen Folks from Swiss Info's Inside Geneva podcast. On February 24th, 2022, Russia attacked Ukraine. The invasion caused Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. And during the year-long conflict, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people, soldiers and civilians, have been killed. Over the past year, a number of episodes of Inside Geneva have looked at the heavy humanitarian toll of the war and its wider implications for the world. We've been joined by historians and international human rights experts to ask about the background to the invasion. We've talked to major UN aid agencies about how the war in Ukraine is impacting other humanitarian crises. And we've asked if sanctions or war crimes investigations can stop or at least limit this conflict. If you're particularly concerned by the war in Ukraine, do listen to these episodes. You can find Inside Geneva, free to listen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all your usual podcast apps.